long as I can remember, you've talked about giving the people their rights, as if you could make them a present of liberty, as a reward for services rendered. It's interesting to me the, that I had heard so much about it before I saw it for the first time, and that's probably your experience as well. You used to write an awful lot about the working man. Oh, go on He's turning into something called organized labor. I thought, honestly, you raved about this movie so much that I just, I assumed, I guess, that this was one of your faves, but... Yeah. You don't care about anything except you. You just want to persuade people that you love them so much that they ought to love you back. Desmond and I, you know, we usually talk about things very exhaustively, but we have avoided talking about this film until this podcast. And so you're really getting our conversation, our, our raw conversation about Citizen Kane. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Replay. I'm Desmond Cole, and I'm happy to be joined by my co-host, Shama Rangwala. Hi. Hey, how's it going? I'm good. I'm good. I'm excited about the movie that we're going to discuss today. I raved. I was raving about this movie as a good movie to do for Replay because there's been so much scholarship on it that I think that having a kind of fresh like this is this is not going to be here's the criticism on Citizen Kane. We're not going to do to death, you know. Oh, this is the camera angle, or here's the you know lighting and shading. That's not what we're going to talk about today. All of that has already been done, and so this is really about you know what this podcast is about, which is the two of us, you know, talking um, spontaneously uh, about uh, pop culture, the pop culture of your, and maybe sometimes you know of the present. I'm just gonna say um, there were some sick camera angles still. Like we just should note that even though we're not gonna talk about it, lighting, mirrors, Orson Welles did some cool shit in this movie, which is interesting because it is, you know, a movie from a long time ago, but um, you see a lot of like modern film in this movie. So before we actually like keep rambling about it, Maybe for people who have not seen Orson Welles' 1941 classic, we should actually explain what it is. Yeah, so I'll give um, a little bit of a summary of, of what, what the deal is with this film. So 1941, you know, I'm going to do Sophia Petrillo from Golden Girls. Picture this, a young <laughs> Orson Welles, you know, whippersnapper. He was, I think, about 24, 25 and was given complete creative control on a film uh, of whatever he wanted to do. And um, if you want uh, a kind of fictionalized version of the, the making of this, Netflix has the movie Mank about Howard Mankiewicz. Uh, and you know, there's all kinds of lore, the battle for Citizen Kane um, around the making of this film, but it is really, a kind of celebration of Orson Welles's genius in some ways. And so we have a film about a, a singular figure of Citizen Kane, but the backstory of the film too is this kind of singular figure of Orson Welles as well. But as a, as a summary of the plot, it's about, you know, a little boy who lives in a farmhouse and his, that land has some, has a mine, like they're, they just have discovered 
this wealth that exists in the land. So again, quintessential American story that the wealth comes from extraction from this, you know, stolen land. This is where the kind of, you know, colonialism haunts all of American culture, obviously. Um, but with this, it's that this singular figure of American capitalism and American power gets everything from extracting from the land itself. And so, um, you know, Thatcher comes along and says, like, you're just like farm people, you're rural people, I'm going to take your kid. And the mom wants to get the kid away from the dad, because it's implied that, you know, he's both emasculated and hapless and abusive, which of course, those things um, often go together. So, Charles Foster Kane gets taken away from his parents, goes to boarding school, goes to college, kind of gets kicked out of a lot of colleges. Um, he has his best friend Leland, who you know is is throughout the there throughout the film, um, and then he buys a newspaper and then buys some newspaper men, and it's about controlling the narrative of American culture. And so he wants to run for politics. He's also kind of entangled with uh, fomenting war because he controls the media and the message. Uh, I feel like Desmond, you're gonna have a lot to, to say about you know, the, that relationship between you know, media and democracy and media and imperialism. Uh, and he gets married twice. He builds himself a castle. He builds himself Xanadu, um, you know, which is of course a term that comes after the famous uh, poem um, Kubla Khan. Even there, it says America's Kubla Khan, and so kind of connected to the romantic poets uh, that there's something sort of timeless about him. And he dies, and the last thing that he says is Rosebud. And there's uh, and drops a snow globe that you know depicts a kind of snowy pastoral scene, which is where we first see him in the film. The form of this narrative is told by a reporter who wants to get to know the truth. He's like, I need a hook first of all, it's because you know they can't just tell a straight up story. Of course, they need a hook, and so um, you know the newspaper boss says, Well, yeah, you know his last uh his last word was rosebud so uh why don't you just investigate that that's going to be the hook for our story so it's uh told through um this reporter thompson going to see important people in charles foster kane's life to get different versions of him and it's this idea you know desmond um i know that you give lots of public talks you're about journalism and uh, you know, one of the really basic things is that there's no neutral story. There's no such thing as objective journalism. And that's something that this film stages because Kane's story is told by multiple narrators um, and you can get a kind of positive, uh, great man view from Bernstein, uh, you know, very different view from Leland, another view from um, his ex-wife, Susan Alexander. And you get a, kind of maybe embittered view from Thatcher, the, the man who sort of shepherded him into adulthood. So uh, that's, that's the summary of it for those of you who haven't seen it. Um, it is worth seeing because the visuals of this film are so interesting. And, um, you know, as Desmond said, you really see modern, like 21st century cinema, the movies that you see 
we're going to talk about um, some of the questions that this, you know, very archetypical iconic story brings up. And also, um, I, I don't know what Desmond thinks about this film because uh, we've just, we have not talked about it until now. So yeah, Desmond, take it, take it away. This film made me upset. And I think one of the really big reasons that it made me upset is that a lot of this subject matter uh, felt very much like things that I think about too much and get frustrated by. <laughs> um, especially as you said, as has to do with like media and but but there were but there were things about the way that the film talked about how media is used that I think were really accurate and um, well portrayed. Orson Welles' character here in this movie, Kane, is a pretty monstrous guy, I think it's safe to say. Like, um, he remarks about himself as we watch him growing up in the movie that, you know, that classic kind of trope, like, if I hadn't had so much money, maybe I would have been a nicer guy. But he says it about himself, right? It's not like somebody is looking at this man who truly has convinced himself he has everything and saying, oh, look at that unhappy, miserly old man. He's, he's um, honest enough to say that I don't even think I'm a good person because I've been corrupted by money and, you know, the pursuit of power and fame and self-importance. So he's at least enough of a character to be able to reflect on um, where he comes from. And as you say, this kind of origin story of there being gold on his family's land and you know, then he gets sent away from home. And, and um, what I think is really interesting about this movie, among other things, is that this character makes an oath to journalism, as it were, but he doesn't really care about what I think journalism is, what it represents, what power that it holds. He starts off in the journalism business as a young man who's just inherited a huge fortune from the gold that was found on his land. And, you know, he decides to um, get into the newspaper business because he thinks it'll be fun. He starts saying, no, 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 but we've got to have principles and ethics. And, and they actually write it down. He and his friend Jed write down what he believes these principles and ethics of him doing his journalism are. And one of the first things he says is we're going to make sure that we tell the truth. And he says this immediately after having suggested that they get a story by one of their reporters pretending to be a cop and lying to somebody and say, if you don't tell me this, you're gonna be in trouble and you're gonna get arrested maybe. So even as he's like, let's manufacture the news in unethical ways, he's also drawing up this statement of principles about how the news is going to be truthful and believable and for the average person he's doing these things simultaneously right in front of you and it is grotesque and it's fucking real even today 70 years after this movie was made i feel like it's this simultaneous profession of these values which no one actually practices in real life but you have to say them in order to keep up this mantra of as you said objective news objective journalism fair and balanced behind the scenes everybody knows that's a fucking crack and they get whatever stories they want and they get them in the ways that they want to and they break their own rules all the time. But to the public, they have to play up this idea 
of um, honest for the people journalism. That's the product that they are selling with their with their newspaper, and it's really um, a frank look at that. I think from this man's kind of uh, tycoonish, ambitious perspective. You know what I mean? Like I think it's nice and refreshing that um, like the evil people in the story don't have to be like flawed hero kind of people, but they're just like exposed as being who they really are. Nobody in this movie really seems to like Kane all that much, although many people fear and respect him. Um, but he's not a nice man and he's not portrayed as a nice man and he doesn't think of himself that way. And I think that that's an interesting way to approach his character and, and the story. Yeah, what he says is, if I didn't have all of this money, I might have been a great man. Uh, I, and we have to ask how greatness is defined there. Is it that he would be nicer? Is it that he would be more truthful? Is it that he would treat people um, more, more equitably with more empathy? Uh, Cain is a monstrous figure. I think that, that we can absolutely agree on this. To me, the two characters who um, I think are are the characters who reveal Kane as such are Jeb Jebediah Leland, his like quote unquote best friend who is tethered to him. Like he does, he depends on him for so long. Um, and he's the one who, when uh, one citizen Kane, when Charles writes up his, I'm gonna call them his Atkinson principles. Uh, when he writes those up, Oh, you, you got to you got to Atkinson principles before me. I'm mad. I'm mad. I was, uh, but I I wasn't sure if you, if that was something that you were going to bring up, and so I wanted to make sure that it that it was there. Um, but when he draws those up, Leland says immediately, "You know what? I think this is going to be really important." And uh, just he's like, "I need a copy of this." I'd like to keep that particular piece of paper myself. I have a hunch might turn out to be something pretty important. A document, like the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. And then of course he sends it back to Charles when he's like, you have really betrayed um, even the fantasy that you had. This fantasy, like Charles believes it in the moment, uh, but everybody who really knows him knows that it's not real. And Leland knows him so well. And you know, in, and ends up, you know, sick with nothing specific in a kind of, uh, you know, home, long-term care home. And he plays this sort of, I don't know anything, but you know that that's just the kind of like wise jester kind of figure because Leland knows everything. And he's the one who knew, he knew Charles better than himself when he wrote up those principles. And Susan Alexander, one of the, you know, you have to clap for her when she tells Thompson, yeah, Charles thought he could control everything. Uh, and, and he did, except uh, for me leaving him. Right. And so, and she knew him and the way that she yells at him. And of course she gives the film the jigsaw metaphor. So this idea of the story, there are all these pieces, Rosebud is just one piece, right? Jebediah's story, Jebediah Leland's story is one piece. Bernstein's story is one piece this or that she is the her work is to put those pieces together and she just sits in their mausoleum of a house which we can we can talk about the house but um she just sits there putting them together and then she's like 
I understand you. I understand you so well because she's good at jigsaw puzzles. And she's like, I'm fucking leaving you. All you want is for people to love you and you give nothing of yourself. And this is this is the voraciousness of American capitalism that it will take from you. It will exploit you and tell you to love, love that exploitation, right? And so that's why I think the monstrosity of Cain as a figure of American racial capitalism, colonial capitalism, imperialism, resource extraction, you know, thick ideology of manufacturing consent. Like he embodies all of those things, but he's also, you know, Orson Welles is like, pretty charming at least you know at the at the beginning of the film you see that he has these ideals when he wants a story written in the way that he wants it and Leland refuses so this is the review of Susan's opera he finishes it Leland drinks so much that he passes out because he's like this is so fucked that like my quote unquote friend wants me to write this. I'm going to write whatever I want. But he's she's drinking during during the writing that he passes out. And Charles finishes it, finishes the pan and that and then fires him and says, this is how much integrity I have. Firing you is just business. But look, I still finished the, the bad review that you wanted to write. And it is so manipulative. And it's exactly the ways that I think uh, all of those that list that I just just said of American hegemony of like racial capitalism, patriarchal power, all of that, that is how it works. It it tells you that it's virtuous when as it is exploiting you. You're the one that wants your wife to be this opera songbird. She admits many times that she never really wanted it. You build her an opera house. You force her to keep singing in the opera, even though she really hates it. And um after your friend is going to write an honest review that she's not really very good you write it under his name so all the while that your partner is like i can't believe that your newspaper uh would just destroy me like this i expected it from all the others but i can't believe that your newspaper and your so-called friend would write this horrible review about me. Little does she know that he wrote the review and put it under his friend's name. And it's just like, that is so ruthless. She even says it to him. Remember, she says like, you fired him, but you gave him $25,000. So like, are you really mad at him for writing this review of me? Like, what's your game here? Like, what game are you playing? And as you say, they have their xanadu mansion pro like sprawling property i mean it's in florida can we just call it mar-a-lago can we just can we just can we just get that over with i mean to know that that comparison has to come into this conversation somewhere it's not totally apt and i don't want to say his name but this is kind of like you know retiring to his um palace in florida away from new york away from the nightlife I don't think it's important whether or not this movie is like a portrayal of like how all rich, you know, tycoon, billionaire, like uh, capitalist class dudes are. I don't think that that's the point. I think that this is like a, an imagination into what one man's life and obsessions could look like. And it's really convincingly done. Yeah. And I think the thing about Charlie is the, this idea that it is not, uh, it's not nature, it's 
the structures of power, right? And that is why the rosebud is like, he getting money, all billionaires are bad. Even if you are like a good kid or whatever, who just likes sledding in the snow, if you give him a lot of money, he's going to become power hungry and, and, and all of that. Uh, so speaking of, you know, the, the Xanadu or the, the Mar-a-Lago, the o- current owner of Mar-a-Lago actually really likes Citizen Kane, but he's not a good reader of texts. So I think it's probably, and I, I don't think he has the attention span to sit through a movie. So he probably saw like some clips of it. Um, but if the, the Coleridge movie poem, about him, I'm sure he'd be able to watch but the Coleridge poem, Kubla Khan, yep. the subtitle of it is, or a vision in a, in a dream, a fragment. So that's already like, it's a kind of fantasy, but it's partial. Um, like it's never, it's, it's not fulfilling, you know, it, it's not fulfilling desire totally. Um, and it's also the like Xanadu of Coleridge's poem is described as a stately pleasure dome and there's nothing remotely pleasurable about Kane Xanadu. It's a mausoleum. It's full of dead things. And Susan is such a vital being. So um, Charlie had not divorced Emily when he started seeing Susan, but they weren't having an affair. He just really, really liked that Susan didn't know who he was and liked his shadow puppets, liked him being a little goofball. He felt like he was an innocent just a regular guy, innocent, and he could be liked for himself. And that was that is what he liked about Susan initially. They weren't fucking. He wasn't cheating on Emily in that way. It was not above board, obviously, um, especially for like social norms of the time. But he was getting something from her that was, re- of course, related to this sense of I've been corrupted. I could be just like an innocent you know, innocent lad doing shadow puppets and making a girl laugh. And when he's blackmailed and Emily leaves, and of course, Emily and their son die off screen. So there's no like, you know, Charles Jr. or, or whatever that like future, like legacy and future is cut off. Um, but that's when he, it's when Emily, you know, the, the union boss guy fi- finds out, brings Emily who is the niece of the president. So obviously, you know, rich and rich and powerful grew up that way. Uh, and she's just like, okay, I, I'm, I'm leaving, taking the kid, but then they die. And then with Susan, she says she wants to be an opera. She thought she would be an opera singer. And it's almost a kind of passing statement that she makes to him. And he takes that thread and he tries to weave this whole career for, for her that is not for her uh, in the sense of for her, but for him, his vision of her, because he wants to he wants to feel like he can do anything. He can even turn somebody who is not a professional singer, who has not the desire to be one into one, that he has that much power and that people will love him. And when the union boss confronts him, he says, you cannot take the voters away from me. You can't take their love away from me, that he needs that so, so badly. Um, I love Susan Alexander. I think that her singing is 
incredible because it's so perfectly not good <laughs> that if it was, but if it was worse than it is, it would be farcical. There's no nuance and it's, let's put it mildly, often not in the middle of the pitch, right? But if it was worse, this is the one thing I love about it because I feel like a lesser film would have had it be really, really bad. But it has to be believable that he's like, we can, we can work with this, right? Or what, yeah, what are your thoughts about this? The scene in the movie, oh my gosh, where she's at the debut and he's just like intently glaring at her watching, like he's consumed, he's completely obsessed, not because he wants her to succeed, not because he's happy that she had this opera house that he built to sing in. He, he's literally just, I don't know, Orson Welles' face in that scene is saying like so much when he's, he's truly consuming her. He's like, he's devouring her because he's just so fixated on this moment that she cannot humiliate him, right? That she has to perform in a way that's going to satisfy him. It's all about him in that moment. And you can just see it in the face that he's making while he's watching her on stage, as if he's like looking at his gray hairs in a mirror or something. And he's just completely fixated on how this makes him look. And this is where, um, you know, shout out to the form of Citizen Kane, you know, the lighting, the makeup, the kind of close up on the face. But, you know, it's a gift. Like you've seen this gift so many times, right? Of him clapping and so deliberately um, just to show everybody, I'll show you, I'll show all of you that you think this isn't good. I'm going to change the public perception of what is good musical art. But what would a what would a corrupt newspaper man do except for that? We talk we've been talking a lot in the politics of the last five years because of who was in office in the United States, a lot about um, manipulation of the media, right? But this guy is not just trying to manipulate an existing media organization. He owns one. So his way of making his not so great partner opera singer into a world beater is just to write whatever he wants. So Leland writes that review and that's for the first show. And then he forces her to keep singing and keep singing and keep singing. And the way that the film shows that to make Desmond your point explicit is that it shows it through a montage of, of newspaper headlines of Susan Alexander sings here, you know, brings down the house at the in this city, in that city. And it's just that montage of how we are getting the information about Susan's opera tour, that it happens after, you know, the Leland's been fired, all of that. And she says she hates it. She's like, fuck you, I don't want to sing. Like you can tell by her singing she doesn't want to sing because there's no feeling in it at all, right? Apart from the pitch and everything else. It's just belting and belting. It's so aggressive because she hates it. And we get that information of that tour mediated through the media, through those new, the montage of the newspaper headlines. And that, yeah, really speaks to your point, Desmond, also is just like, yeah, brilliant form of storytelling. I don't know how much 
the montage was used as a device in cinema before Orson Welles, but watching this movie, you would think he invented it. Like, it's so interesting how, again, that is such a modern thing that we still do. The way that the story is advanced in this movie by doing these montages is like, I thought that that was actually kind of really interesting and neat. I recently watched this, so I haven't had a ton of time to think about it. But you know, one thing that has come into my mind is a documentary called The Queen of Versailles that came out, I'm just going to say, almost 10 years ago now. Do you know what I'm talking about? You know what? I, I watched it not that long after it came out because I was just flipping around Netflix or whatever. And I was quite fascinated by it, actually. Um, cause the, the crash also happens in that, right? Like in that movie, like it's like they build this huge, they build their Xanadu or whatever, but it's like Versailles and she fancies herself like a Marie Antoinette. Um, but they, it, they lose everything. No, I don't yeah, know. The, yeah. The guy who makes all the money in the movie is like this condo Lord and he makes all this money off of timeshare condos. Cause he's one of the first <laughs> you know, get in on that whole thing. And he makes just a wild amount of money, marries a woman who's a former beauty queen and promises her that she's going to build, he's going to build her a replica of- Or actually modeled after Versailles, is it? Or is it just like- It could be, it could be Versailles. Maybe that would explain the name of the movie. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The similarities in the the idea that, as you said, they have this- um, never-ending project of like throwing money into this 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 cavern that they're supposed to live in they appear grossly unhappy all the time um their money hasn't given them any solace and you get this inadvertent look into their lives through an economic collapse in uh in citizen kane it's the great depression of course of 1929 and in uh the queen of versailles it's the 2008 financial crisis when the housing market collapses and this guy who made all his money in condo timeshares is suddenly struggling to stay afloat and keep all of these things that he's hoarded throughout his life just like charlie kane so i do think that there's some fascinating parallels there and again as you said the kind of like um the great man narrative right I mean, is there even is there even a way that you could say that Charles Foster Kane um, inspired the great anti-hero renaissance of the 2000s with like, you know, I adore the Sopranos. Um, I think there's some middle seasons that are that are not that great. But the first season of the Soprano and I mean, I love the whole show is just genius. But Tony, they all say Tony Soprano gave us you know, Breaking Bad, uh, that Walter White gave us, Don Draper, like all of these kinds of um, anti-heroes. I mean, Citizen Kane, like Charles, Charles is an anti-hero. I got, I, like, I wonder if this is like how far the legacy goes. But I, I, because I've like written, I wrote a dissertation chapter on on Upton Sinclair's Oil and the and the film There Will Be Blood. And I always think about how There Will Be Blood is not like a movie that's possible without Citizen Kane. Um, and, there, and there are probably so many films that are like that. Uh, I just want to say there are like a few things that I really chuckled at this film. One of them is the ways that the headlines about Susan put singer in quotation marks. Uh, yeah, that was, that was pretty hard. Really, <laughs> it's really harsh. It's really funny. But she doesn't even, she doesn't even want that, right? 
Um, but he also calls Susan, he describes her as a cross-section of the American public. And yet she, she does outsmart him in the sense of she is smarter than him. She understands him much better than he understands himself. In fact, she gives us the speech that is basically the articulation of what is his fuckery, right? She's like, you want everyone to love you without you giving anything of yourself. You can't do this to me. I see. It's you that this is being done to. It's not me at all. It's not what it means to me. I can't do this to you. Oh, yes, I can. And he's like, I buy you this, I buy you that. He's, she's like, that doesn't matter. So she kind of gives that like thesis of the film um, even. But she ends up like, she ends up broke. She doesn't have any of his money. She's an alcoholic. She's singing, but she's kind of singing in a lounge. Um, you know, it's not, uh, you know, she doesn't seem like she's very happy. And yet she mourns him as well when she dies she's she seems pretty sad about it but maybe more in that way that he was such a towering figure in her life and now he's gone maybe part of it is like a bit of relief as well okay, can i just say i'm really glad you mentioned that because i really thought about the moment when thompson the reporter who's speaking to her and trying to get her to talk to him and tried to get her to explain who charlie kane was but also what rosebud could mean um, he reflects at one point, he says, all the same, I kind of feel sorry for Mr. Kane. And I love that line because again, it speaks to this idea of objectivity and journalism being shattered. Um, the person who is writing about this guy and trying to memorialize him does have an opinion. He, we might not ever see that opinion in whatever he ends up writing, but we get to see behind the scenes in this in a way in the in the window of him doing his work as he reflects on everything that he's hearing about Charlie Kane and all the stories that people are telling him you can see the journalist being like this guy kind of seemed like he had a huge fall and mm -hmm. I, feel, I feel bad for him because of that you there's no denying he was an ass but yeah even this person who's supposed to be like just getting the real story can't help but have an emotional reaction which like you said is the same as his ex-partner it's like she walks out on him and has the incredible courage mm -hmm. in that scene to like actually walk out on this guy who's been assaulting her and shit but like even she is like yeah you know it's a sad thing he was kind of a great guy or could have been a great guy yeah so Susan, yeah, I think I really like that you use the word courage there because she says to him, you never give me anything I really care about. You just try to buy me into giving you something. And that's like when she's leaving him. Um, so she's, so when Thompson says he feels bad for Kane and Susan kind of agrees, it could be that he was rich and powerful and had had a fall from that but I think that there's also this archetypical American story of like innocence corrupted right and so who they feel sorry for is the little boy who loved Rosebud who loved sledding in the kind of midwestern snow and so like they're 
there are those two layers to it that it, that maybe Thompson in that moment as the you know as the character he what he means is like he had everything and then lost it um this is tragic you know tragedy is always about some kind of like flaw like you bring about your own downfall sort of thing right but there's a way that the it's kind of should we should we feel sorry for citizen kane not citizen kane baby charlie kane who just loves sledding being corrupted by you know american capitalism and power is it that you know it doesn't matter like how like kind of pure as pure as the midwestern snow your origin is capitalism ruins everything while oh i i know he ends up becoming a really famous man and of course people know his story as a result of how rich and powerful and famous he becomes or a story or okay right well you've anticipated <laughs> what i was going to say correct we as the audience get a view into him from childhood but what this is really kind of doing is demonstrating to us how constructed a story can be how it can be manufactured how you can fill in details about somebody's life without knowing them that project what you think that they might have been like so that you can have sympathy for them oh he was just a simple boy from a humble beginnings and he gained everything and then he lost it and that makes it even more sad right but you're 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 filling in all of those jigsaw puzzle pieces not really being able to see anything near the complexity of this individual's life mm -hmm. this movie is itself deconstructing like what storytelling is how incomplete storytelling is like the 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 true true realization that you can tell simple stories if you want to mm -hmm. you can simplify a story and uh, presumably make it more relatable to an audience but really a story can never be told because it's just way mm -hmm. too complex and there's always more to it than there would even be time to tell it but I we can feel sorry for little charlie and we can say that Citizen Kane was an abusive asshole who deserves to die alone in a mausoleum of his own construction. Okay, let's, so what's going on if I really didn't give a shit for little Charlie in this movie? Because I didn't. By the end, mm -hmm. I honestly. Sure, I, yeah. I, it's, it's in the same way I think that the movie Amelie does a really interesting job of framing the movie loosely but consistently with the idea of Princess Diana dying, a real thing that happened in the world, and constantly using the characters as these people who for some it's like this deeply tragic national thing that they are mourning. I mean, the movie's in France. They're not even talking about somebody in their own country, but the whole world is just transfixed by this death of a princess and can't stop talking about it and some people are sad for her in that same way that you might be like sad do you know what i mean for mm -hmm. charlie kane you don't know them you have mm -hmm. no real world connection to them but you've constructed one through a story that you've told yourself about why you're giving this person so much of your attention so i don't feel any more sad i guess for the character in this movie as I would 
for any person whose story has allowed itself to be revealed to me, but who otherwise is just, you know, rich and in my face. I think that this is a really uh, good transition to talking about Charles Montgomery Burns, because Charles Montgomery Burns is evil. He tents his fingers, saying excellent. He releases hounds. He lives in a mansion like Xanadu. <laughs> Um, he has many origin stories because, of course, we know from uh, one of the best Simpson episodes, Last Exit to Springfield, that he grew up in, with like, a, you know, his, his family owned an atom factory. Atoms, atoms, right? But in ep- season five, episode four, entitled Rosebud, of I guess a show that is, I should just say the show name. I haven't said that yet. But uh, yeah, Desmond and I both love The Simpsons a lot. So y'all will hear, you'll definitely hear more about The Simpsons on this uh, on this podcast. Yeah, this makes two in a row. <laughs> yeah, but The Simpsons Bobo the Bear episode where Bobo is Mr. Burns's rosebud is so brilliant in, I think, illustrating this idea. Like, fuck Mr. Burns always. He's horrible. Is he less horrible because he had a teddy bear that he liked as a child? (laughs) No, like who cares? Like also fuck the child burns, right? Like, (laughs) you know, so so he's missing Bobo the bear and Maggie has it. That's his rosebud is his, is Bobo. Maggie has it and he takes over everything he buys every company. They are, they've taken over the media. They've taken over beer manufacturing. And this is all to pressure them to that, the Simpsons family to take Bobo away from Maggie and give it to Mr. Burns. Um, and when Maggie finally does of her own will give it to Mr. Burns, he says, <gasps> Smithers, I'm so happy. Something amazing has happened. I'm actually happy. Take a note. From now on, I'm only going to be good and kind to everyone. I'm sorry, sir. I don't have a pencil. Oh, don't worry. I'm sure I'll remember it. <laughs> it's Charles's Atkinson principles or Atkinson statement. And then they... We have to talk about the Atkinson principles more specifically. Go ahead. Go ahead. The Atkinson principles are... Uh, so again, to go back to the movie briefly, um, when Charlie Kane decides to take over a newspaper called The Inquirer, um, he kind of really like glibly, to be honest, comes up on the spot with some principles with his uh, yeah buddy, Jed, who's going to be a writer in the newspaper with him. And he admits he knows nothing about the business, but hey, I've got a lot of money and time on my hands. And I got a lot of axes that I want to grind. So let's do this. And he comes up with these principles. The Toronto Star, when I was there, the star operated under what it calls Atkinson principles. Atkinson principles are so named because of a person whose photo, if you look him up, Joseph E. Atkinson, he you you would think you were looking at the person played in Citizen Kane. Like he it's just so wonderful the way that that movie captures these like, you know, old news guy types. Uh, I'll I'll read a little bit from the Toronto Star's (laughs) page. Throughout his 50 years as a publisher of the Toronto Star from 1899 to 1948, Joseph E. Atkinson developed strong views, 
on both the role of a large city newspaper and the editorial principles it should espouse. These values and beliefs now form what are called the Atkinson principles. For more than a century, they have provided the intellectual foundation on which the star has operated and have given the paper its distinctive voice. So a long time ago, an upstanding old timey white dude came up with a bunch of principles about how you're supposed to run a newspaper and darn it, we still follow those principles today. You know, we believe in a strong and independent Canada, social justice, individual and civil liberties, community and civic engagements and so on and so on, right? And this is what this newspaper pledges to guide itself through these Atkinson principles. But they're taken about as seriously as the way that Charlie Kane and his friend Jed just on the back of a napkin make up their principles the day that they buy a newspaper. I can say that as somebody who worked there. I can say that as somebody who watches as the Toronto Star publishes pieces by people like Rosie DeMano, who is a legitimate columnist there. I use legitimate loosely. <laughs> In their eyes, she's legitimate. But Rosie DeMano, you know, we talked about encampments on our last episode and the housing crisis and the way that it's um, manifesting itself around our country right now. Rosie DeMano went to an encampment in Trinity Bellwoods Park recently before that park was raided by the police and um, pitched a tent and went around having conversations with people, which she documented. It doesn't appear that she told them that she was doing this for the Toronto Star. She, I guess, pretended that she was somebody else. And Toronto Star published that piece. And, you know, they must have gotten a lot of mail from outraged readers being like, how can this be of any journalistic integrity? But I know, and most people who pay attention know, that all those rage clicks and rage shares and all the conversation about a columnist like Rosie DeMano doing something so unethical is what drives the newspaper business. They don't give a shit about Atkinson principles. I know because I was told that uh, I was writing about race too much. And in that page that I was reading to you on the Toronto Star about Atkinson principles, it says of the man, he was particularly concerned about injustice, be it social, economic, political, legal, or racial. But when it comes to a Black person in 2017 writing for your publication and also engaging in activities for what was it? Oh yeah, social justice, that's on this list. That that person is now violating the rules of your newspaper somehow and can be constructively fired as I was. Um, this is why I told you that this movie was giving me a lot of feelings and that I was upset when I was watching it because it really reveals some important truths um, in, an, in, in an excellent and artistic way about the duplicity of the mainstream news media. Yeah, and this is why uh, I have been raving about it as something that we should talk about on this podcast. I have been watching, uh, I have too much to say about the 20th anniversary of 9-11, but just in the context of a Citizen Kane episode, watching the, the archives of how consent was manufactured to attack people who had nothing to do with 9-11 to just completely rot the brains of the American public that is all that is on the media the media could have 
actually pushed back on the state narrative. But what Citizen Kane does beautifully is show us the entanglement of the media and the state. So we so the ideal is that the media holds the state accountable and the practice is that they work in tandem. So um, yeah, Citizen Kane still extremely relevant, 1941, like so much had not happened. It was just a few years into World War II that this movie was made. Um, it's, I just think that it is, you know, at the beginning I was saying it's not, it's not one of my favorite movies because it doesn't really come up when I list like movies that I love or, or watch a lot, rewatch a lot. But now that we've had this conversation, you know, it actually is one of the gr great movies. <laughs> Um, and yeah, there's always something to talk about. And so even for a movie that has been written about, there's YouTube videos on it, you know, just tons of scholarly criticism. Uh, there's always something to say about it because history keeps happening and the kinds of critical claims that it makes are this, you know, we're still making, we're still doing those kinds of critiques of media and democracy today. So I have a question for you. Do you think if this movie was made today, and I know we can never know this, but let's <laughs> imagine you talked about like anti-heroes earlier and you talked about Tony Soprano and about, you know, Breaking Bad and stuff. What the anti-hero character that I see most often in television, especially today, and a lot of movies represents is not simply an anti-hero, but like somebody who's engaging in some form of like vigilanteism, who's like bad, but it's complicated, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's like Dexter, right? I'm hunting down people who um, harm children and stuff like that. And so it's complicated. I might be immoral, but like in this crazy world, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that one thing that's again, refreshing about watching Citizen Kane is that we're never asked to believe that Charlie Kane is a good man. And I wonder, do you think if this movie was made now, there would be more of a desire for us to see him as a either a good man or a complicated man? I love this question because, you know, my uh, a lot of my academic research is on adaptation. So I'm going to answer that question with uh, Gatsby reference because we can speculate about Citizen Kane, but we know what it looks like for Gatsby to be retold, right? And it absolutely is to make him a romantic, that he just loves Daisy so much. Um, you know, he is uh, really self, like all of his like selfishness and is all because of this like eternal love. When the novel of The Great Gatsby is like, he needs to solidify his class position and whiteness. And, uh, you know, he's not, I mean, there's lots of the novel, especially the, the narrator, Nick, is both like attracted to and repelled by him. And so the way that I would probably uh, would make more, uh, this is, a, of course, this is speculation time, but I could see an adaptation, a reboot of Citizen Kane, where they really lean in to the rosebud sentimentality to the lost innocence while I think that the actual Citizen Kane 
is so brilliant at the end with Thompson. Somebody's like, oh, would that explain it all? Like this or that? And it's like, well, it's just like one piece of the jigsaw puzzle. There's no like key that's going to explain it all. But I, I think that a reboot would try to make that the key that explains it all and that he's actually like a, he's a good person at heart. He was just corrupted. Well, and that's why the jigsaw metaphor is so useful because the fact that I don't think he's portrayed as a good person doesn't mean he's not complicated. It just feels to me like in a lot of our storytelling today, complicated means an excuse for being bad, mm. an, an explanation for why I have to do all of these harms and you have to sympathize with me rather than, yeah, I, the, I am a bad agent or a bad actor. Um, and you can see that without having to always be like drawn to sympathize with me. I mean, like, you know, really great literature can do that too. I've read Lolita, mm -hmm. like probably the most awful I've ever felt reading mm -hmm. something because um, Nabokov actually pulls off that thing where he's like, this is a horrible person and they're mm -hmm. complicated. Mm -hmm. um, and you, I don't know, as a reader, I definitely in, in a sickening way often felt myself feeling sympathetic toward this obviously monstrous character. And that's what I think Nabokov was playing with us all when he was doing when he was writing that character right um I just think I'm getting a little tired of that because I think it's really hard to do that well and I think that um what we do a lot today is like I think this is why there's so many cop shows because there's this desperation to take something that is like obviously harmful and be like but maybe and, and instead of exploring that harm it's like a again it's a justifying and it's an excusing of so like you could put yourself in the shoes of the killer and be like oh i would totally do that right and and i and i don't know why so much of our story maybe i do know why so much of our storytelling is that today but i just i'm constantly interested with this idea that you have to sympathize with the bad guy mm -hmm. that no one's asking you to love Citizen Kane, the character. Yeah. You're just asked to look at him. And through that, you see a whole bunch of complexity. But I think today we're really begging people to love our characters as they're like doing a whole bunch of harm. I think that your Lolita comparison is so brilliant. Um, and it also brings up the question of historicizing when these stories are told or emerge, right? So um, Citizen Kane, 1941, Lolita is mid fifties, I think 1955. Uh, what does it mean to tell that story in the like war, post-war era of US hegemony versus telling and retelling these stories in the post 9-11 period? I think that that, there, there is a difference, right? Uh, so gosh, that could be a whole, we could do a whole episode on this, um, but Citizen Kane is such a great entry into it. And I think Lolita is the perfect example of he's so complex, he exceeds himself because, you know, Humbert Humbert is a kind, he's so recursive that he is like, 
has the same name <laughs> twice, uh, but he is a representative of like European enlightenment <laughs> and he's so monstrous and horrible, right? Enlightenment and sophistication and all of those things. And he's just the worst person. Um, but yeah, Lolita just brill like brilliant, not like novel to compare uh, to, to this with what are we asked to do as witnesses? Oh, this was a super fun conversation about this film that uh, I think it is so rich that we could keep talking about it. Um, but I would ask all of you to, you know, if you enjoyed listening to this, if you haven't seen it, definitely go watch it. Uh, it's just, even if you know the story, it's really worth watching. Um, and if you've seen it, if you saw it a long time ago, maybe it's time for, for a rewatch, especially as we're thinking so much about this relationship between media and democracy today. I think Citizen Kane has a lot to say about that. Yeah, so as, as we've said in this podcast, we're not um, asking you to support us, but really to think about uh, what is happening in your community and how you can help your community the mutual aid group that I would like to highlight for this episode is Hairs Outreach, H-A-R-E-S, Hairs like our little animal neighbors that we have on the prairies. Um, and they were formerly known as Treaty 6 um, Community Outreach, but this is a mutual aid group in Amiskuchi, Wiskayagan, otherwise known as Edmonton. And they do really great work, you know, handing out hot packs in the, in the winter, um, bus tickets, you know, making sure that uh, people have food. They're going to be, um, you know, doing a lot in the uh, as the weather gets colder. But in the summer, they were also doing lots of like handing out water bottles and really just being out in the community and making sure, especially that you know our unsheltered neighbors and and uh, more vulnerable people have. Uh, you know, what they, they need to get through the day. So yeah, Hairs Outreach, H-A-R-E-S Outreach. They have a Facebook page, Instagram, and they accept donations via e-transfer. So you can check them out and that will also be uh, tweeted out and put in the show notes on our website. So thank you very much, Shama, for the recommendation of Citizen Kane this week. Very, very good one. You can find us on Twitter at ReplayThePod. We also have email, replaypodmail at gmail.com if you want to get in wow. touch with us that way. We hope you'll join us again next week. Um, please hit us up on social media or in our email if you want to get in touch with us. Thank you very, very much for listening, and we will see you next week. Take care of yourselves and each other, and uh, thanks for all the support so far for our new little project. Mm -hmm.